Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We begin by expressing our thanks to the life of Queen Elizabeth II, whose death was announced after most of this episode was recorded. It's a moment for deep reflection. Like so many Australians, I've spent the hours since we awoke to the news trying to absorb the profundity of what's occurred, the first death of an Australian sovereign in my lifetime. I'm Nick Cater, the Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre and the host of Battleground, which screens on ADH-TV every Friday at 8pm via the ADH-TV app, which is available from the Google Play or Apple stores. The Queen is dead. Long live the King. That traditional declaration on the death of a monarch neatly, neatly encapsulates the eternal miracle of the crown. It's an institution that transcends the human lifespan and human frailty. Nonetheless, the loss of Elizabeth II will be deeply felt. She was a remarkable and much-loved queen who inspired exceptional loyalty amongst people, even like me, who misguidedly began their adult lives as Republicans. 70 years ago, three weeks after the death of King George V, Prime Minister Robert Menzies pledged Australia's allegiance to the young queen with these words. With God's help, we are resolved to do all that we may to make her reign as rich and kind and good and memorable as that of her illustrious father. I doubt that anyone present in Parliament to hear that speech would have imagined that Elizabeth would serve with such dignity and grace for the next 70 years. Some may see the stability of her reign as a matter of good fortune, others as a gift of divine providence. Either way, we have cause to be grateful for the service of a queen who has anchored, been an anchor of stability throughout seven turbulent decades. The Netflix series The Crown may not be the most accurate historical record of Elizabeth's extraordinary reign, but it does serve to illuminate the profound changes in Britain and other Western societies that were the backdrop to her life. She reigned supreme throughout the cultural disruption of the 1960s the ascent of supranationalism and the end of the age of deference. Despite all this upheaval, or perhaps, perhaps because of it, the Crown's role as our constitutional centre of gravity remains secure. King Charles III now assumes the duty 
unchanged from that one bestowed, bestowed upon his mother in 1952 as protector of the law and the focal point of our parliamentary system. Menzies' affection for the monarchy was both patriotic and pragmatic. The familial sentiment towards Britain in the early 1950s would have made making the head of the Commonwealth our, natural, uh, our figurehead more natural for Australians than it later became. History, however, tells its own story. Australia and Antarctica remain the only two continents in the world never to experience a civil war. Political power has always been transferred peacefully, even after Gough Whitlam's dismissal in 1975. Menzies was right to conclude that constitutional monarchy is the best form of governance bar none. Counterintuitively, placing an unelected figure in such a powerful position at the centre of the constitution is the protection against tyranny and a guarantee of parliamentary freedom. The Queen's constitutional right to make acts of parliament could only be exercised, quote, by and with the advice of the Senate and House of Representatives, according to Australian law. In the spirit of the Magna Carta, Magna Carta the Queen was both master of the Australian Parliament and its servant. Menzies declared this to be the most democratic monarchy in the whole wide world, and the Queen played her part in that. For the 88% of Australians who've not reached their 70s, the face of the Queen has been synonymous with the Crown for our entire lives. Her death reminds us that we owe our allegiance not to a person, but the institution she or he represents. And so it was that in the early hours of Friday morning, when most of us were asleep, our allegiance was transferred from Elizabeth II to King Charles III. Under statute passed by the Australian Parliament in 1953, Charles is, by the grace of God, the King of the United Kingdom, Australia and 14 other nations, head of the Commonwealth and defender of the faith. A responsible government under the Crown is, as Menzies said, the greatest system of government yet devised. Elizabeth II has played her part in that to perfection and she'll be missed by every loyal Australian more deeply than words can express. There's no better tribute I can offer today than that bestowed by Menzies in 1977 towards the end of his life. He said, the present queen, who is the most remarkable monarch since the first Elizabeth, has done so much to strengthen the position of the crown and inspire general respect for it, that I'm constantly horrified to find that some alleged intellectuals in Australia want to have a republic. I hope they fail dismally. Let's pause for reflection for a moment, after which we'll get into the rest of the programme, which, as I said at the top, was recorded before the sad announcement of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth's death. Well, this might be a timely point to bring in my Menzies Research Centre colleague, Amanda Stoker, former Commonwealth Assistant Attorney General and a specialist in constitutional law. Amanda, I, I understand the passion that some people feel towards the Republic, including some people that you and I would count as friends and allies on most other policy matters. But why do people like Matt Thistlethwaite always want to dumb it down to, to avoid the complexities and just really reduce it to one, I think, very, very um, deceptive idea of the Australian head of state? 
I'd say it's worse than dumbing down, Nick. I'd suggest that it's outright dishonest. It attempts to suggest that there's something foreign about the leadership of this country as a way of harnessing people's love of Australia to use against the structures that have served it so well. That's not an honest way of representing our system. And it also um, dishonestly represents what would be involved in any change. And that, I think, is a very uh, disappointing tone to take into a discussion about something as important as our constitutional arrangements. Well, look, next Tuesday night, we've got a date. Don't forget that. You'll be joining me and several hundred others in <laughs> Old Parliament House to celebrate the legacy of a great Australian, the late Neville Bonner who was the first Indigenous Australian to enter the federal parliament a little over a half a century ago. Now, Bono is a proud a member of the Jagera people, but he was also very proud to be Australian, a proud Queenslander, and a staunch, a staunch defender of the institutions we inherited from the British, including the monarchy. Well, I want to just now play you, Amanda, a short extract from a very powerful speech he gave to the Constitutional Convention in 1998. But my heart is heavy. I worry for my children and my grandchildren. I worry that what has proven to be a stable society, which now recognises my peoples as equals, is about to be replaced. How dare you? I repeat, how dare you? You told my people that your system was best. We have come to accept that. We have come to believe that the dispossessed, despised, adapted to your system. And now you say that you were wrong and we were wrong to believe you. Well, look, he's right, isn't he, Amanda? A very powerful defence there of, of uh, the status quo. But the onus should be on those who want the change to make the case why we need the change in a convincing manner. It's not surely for those of us who uh, support the status quo to defend that. I think that's right, Nick. And whether we're talking about uh, those who want a republic or whether we're talking about those who want Indigenous recognition in the Constitution or anything else for that matter, one has to say, well, what's the problem we're trying to fix here and how does this fix the problem? When it comes to the republic, it's really not clear what the problem is that needs to be fixed. We already have an Australian head of state. We already have a system of democratic and accountable government. What exactly do proponents want to achieve? And similarly, when it comes to Indigenous recognition in the Constitution, if what you want is higher living standards or better life outcomes for Indigenous people, something I think we all want to see, how does changing a couple of words in the Constitution with all of the pitfalls that produces for judicial activism, for dividing our nation by race in its founding documents, for splitting our society along identity politics lines, how does doing that improve the lot of the everyday Indigenous Australian living in a remote community? And no one seems to be able to make that case. And I'd suggest the reason is because it doesn't solve the problem. Look, I think it's always a mistake to try and double-guess historical figures and what they might think about current issues. So uh, leaving aside that issue of the voice for a moment, 
I do think it's clear, though, that Neville Bonner would have had uh, great difficulty with the identity politics that we that's so prevalent today. For instance, in his maiden speech, which he delivered 51 years ago this very week, by the way, he only hints at his Aboriginal heritage when he expresses pride in his race. Now, that would be an unfashionable term today, but that was the language he used. But he also puts it in the context of pride about being able to stand on an equal footing alongside any other senators in Canberra. He said, first and foremost, I participate here as an Australian citizen. I trust that our deliberations will be, in fact, for the true welfare of all Australians. How, how different that is, Amanda, from the, the rhetoric of the Black Lives Matter movement uh, or the dogma of critical race theory? It really is different, but isn't it beautiful? The idea mm. that um, we value all Australians as equals, no matter their colour or creed, is the beautiful um, principle on which this country has been built for many years and should continue to rest upon. And it's worked in many ways. If what you're looking for is parliamentary representation, well, we have Indigenous people in Australia's parliament in a number far exceeding their prevalence in the ordinary population. And that's wonderful. It's something that's been achieved based on their ability and their contribution and their merit rather than some other arbitrary measure. And it is so much better for us to focus on um, who we are and what we bring to the table as Australians rather than being focused always on historical victimhood or the things that divide us. Well, look, uh, Anthony Albanese we've commented before, is a man in a hurry. He's in a great rush to push through major reforms in a very sp short space of time. Uh, and look, I've got nothing against energy in politics. Uh, sometimes I wish there was a little more of it. Uh, but it seems to me there's a, a real danger in trying to force too much change too quickly. Uh, and it, this illustrates, I think, possibly a philosophical divide between generally on the left and and our side of politics where they're desperate to knock everything down and start again, whereas we believe in sort of gradual uh, reform and, and, and doing things with respect to the value in, in our current institutions. Would you say that's true? Look, I think that's right. And common sense, I think, demonstrates the value in that more incremental approach. You don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater every time you want to make a change. Good reform is about taking what's good, keeping that and changing that which needs to be changed. But when Labor are so much in a hurry, um, they are desperate to inflict a revolution overnight, inevitably things get done sloppily, they're done with poor consultation, the listening that's required to make sure that proposed solutions work for the communities that they are meant to serve gets lost. And the result that you get is um, a little like what we saw during the Gillard years, school halls that um, sometimes get duplicated, um, pink bats in roofs that catch on fire and end the lives of young apprentices, cash for clunkers programs that just don't work. That's the kind of results you get when change is fast and sloppy rather than incremental, well thought through, well consulted upon and well researched. Um, and that will start to bear fruit, I suggest, before the end of this parliamentary term.
Yeah, the trouble is that though, you know, I'm in, I'm in favour of careful, gradualist, painstaking uh, uh, improvement of society. It doesn't make a good tweet, does it? It's hardly going to go viral. <laughs> is it? Is that kind of philosophy just not? I mean, it's sort of correct one, certainly. But is it? Is it exciting enough for our age? Well, I've got, to, I've got to admit that it doesn't make for a good TikTok video to say, let's be careful, responsible and well thought through. Um, but there's got to be a way that we can allow substance to prevail over form um, and help people to understand that some things really are just too important to condense into a tweet or to um, insist be able to be communicated via the glib tones of social media. Now, look, in the few moments left, I think we should get our heads out of the cloud and talk about some real concrete policy issues. Childcare, you wrote about this in the Australian Financial Review this week, unfashionably arguing that it's time to really take a good look at how much we're subsidising childcare and particularly, you know, the way subsidies are given to people earning up to half a million dollars, I think, a year. Uh, it, 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 we've got to come back to the fact, is this policy working? Is it doing what we want it to do, you know, which is to get women into the workforce and so forth? It's not working, is it? So we do have to think again. Yeah, look, there were some changes made under the last government that were about taking away the penalty that families felt about going back to work once they had a second or third child to make that second and third child's costs much lower. Labor's policy going into the election, though, was to have families earning well over half a million dollars receiving increases in their childcare subsidy. But we already, as a country, spent $8.6 billion on childcare subsidies. Labor are going to put another $5.4 billion into it. And I think we need to recognise that despite these enormous subsidies, every time they get bumped up, the fees also go up with them and families don't feel any better off. We need to, I think, be willing to step back and almost reevaluate this system from first principles. There's no reason why we should be, um, by definition, shoehorning families into centre-based childcare when it's not necessarily the most efficient way for all families. And we should be more willing to allow families to mix and match the amount and types of care that they need to reflect the, the values, the work choices, the preferences and the financial constraints faced by all of these different types of families. And they can range from tax deductibility of centre-based childcare as an alternative to subsidies that's much more efficient, right through to considering making tax deductibility of nannies. Um, for instance, if you're a shift worker or let's say a junior accountant or lawyer, the idea that you can do the 8am to 6pm model of childcare drop-offs and pickups is, is just ridiculous. It can't be done. Um, there's also, I think, a lot to be said for recognition of those families that make great sacrifices to make one parent able to care for people at home by being able to opt into family taxation rather than taxing each working person as an individual, we can show some recognition for the sacrifices that are made from which society ultimately benefits in the lower cost associated with that child as they grow. There's lots of options we could have on the table here, but Labor seem intent on pushing everybody into this centre-based, institutionalised model that is let's face it, um, a place where unions can get their hooks in and they can get their hooks into the education of children earlier and earlier. That's not necessarily the best thing for children, for parents or for people who work in the sector. Well, look, I'll just put a big 
asterisk next to the word childcare on my script and underlined it three times to remind us we've got to come back to this. I think we've only just begun to explore this. And I think it's important, isn't it, Amanda, that, that uh, the coalition doesn't keep shying away from setting policy settings on things that we don't always think are our strength politically, but nonetheless, it's important they're done properly with a, with a, you know, with a strong liberal perspective on this rather than a tax and spend one. So we must do that work. And thank you for reminding us. Thank you for joining us again on, on uh, Battleground. And uh, we'll see you again next week. My pleasure. Catch you later, Nick. Thank you. One of the things I learned very early on in my media career was never take your readers or viewers for granted. You must almost remember that there's plenty of other things they could be doing with their time rather than watching or reading your copy. When I first came to Australia in 1989, we had a choice of five TV channels, which seemed competitive enough. But in the age of broadband, I can't even hazard a guess for how many other channels you could be watching right now. So thank you to all of you who've taken the trouble to find us, download the app or just click on the internet link and watch this show and be part of the growing ADH TV community. You're here because you're looking for something different. I understand that. Something different than the kind of monotone, predictable stuff that's served up daily in the mainstream media. You're not here to hear as parrots smart Alec lines from Twitter. You're here for adult conversation and I hope we can give it to you between people who are not content to go with the flow, settle for the easy answers or bow to conventional wisdom. So whatever you think of this show, and you're welcome to have whatever view you like, we'll always strive to prevent, present original thought and provide a robust arguments, more robust than you'll generally find in the mainstream media, which uh, provides a neat segue to my next guest, Claire Lehman, a writer who I greatly admire, not least for intellectual rigor, reasoned arguments and the civility of her tone. Claire is an entrepreneur of free speech the founder of the online magazine Quillette. It's a haven for intelligent free thinkers and a forum for the kind of opinions that might get you into trouble if you publish them elsewhere. So Claire, congratulations on Quillette, which seems to go from strength to strength, and welcome to ADH TV. Your first appearance, I believe, but I know you're gonna fit right in here. Thanks so much, Nick. It's so great to be here. Claire, I'd like to set the tone for this conversation uh, at a rather high level, if, if, if you might excuse me, by quoting from John Stuart Mill. It's a quote that I'm sure you're familiar with. Mill's talking about the act of silencing the expression of an opinion, or cancel culture, I guess, as we, we'd call it today. For Mill, the silencing of an opinion is not just irritating or illiberal, but a peculiar evil, an evil, he says. It doesn't matter if the silenced opinion is right or wrong, he says. To silence it amounts to an act of robbery against the human race. Why? Well, he goes on to explain. If the opinion is right, we're deprived of the opportunity for exchanging error for truth. If it's wrong, we lose what is almost an equal benefit, the clearer perception and livelier impression of the truth, which is produced by its collision with error. Now, that's a rather long-winded and, uh, and philosophical way into this argument. But uh, having set that uh, framework, tell me about the journal Nature, uh, Nature Human Behaviour, which you wrote about last week in your column in The Australian, and its announcement that it's going to suppress scientific research if it has the potential to harm the public. Yes, so last week I wrote a column for The Australian about an editorial that was published in Nature Human Behaviour, which is a prestigious scientific journal. 
And this editorial was accompanied by a new guidance document which stated that the journal would no longer publish uh, research that might harm the public. Now this Nature Human Behaviour is similar to a psychology journal or a journal that publishes research on um, what, what it says, human behaviour. So, uh, I mean, that, that editorial, I mean, we all know that ideology and groupthink and cultural norms and social norms have influenced science and have been influencing science for a long time. But this was the first time such a prestigious journal said it in explicit terms that they were going to be censoring science, even if it was true, mm. for moral reasons. And obviously we all know that what you might think is moral differs from what I think is moral and who are the, who are the journal editors to say that we can't handle the truth because they think it might be harmful. And, you know, like we, we've, been, we've been through this before. We've, we, as a society, we've seen what happens when the truth is suppressed or when science is suppressed and it never turns out well. Uh, so I just thought that it was a remarkably worrying development that a scientific journal would be so explicit in uh, their declaration that they were going to censor science. Yeah, look, I, I share your disquiet on this. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the question is always, of course, if you're going to ban, you know, so-called so damaging uh, or harmful speech or misinformation, who gets to decide yeah, what fits into that right. category? Yeah. Which takes me to uh, a new law which has just been signed in, into law, legislation signed into law by California government, Governor Gavin Newsom. Now, this will allow regulators to discipline doctors for spreading uh, misinformation related to COVID-19. So what's misinformation, you might ask? Well, the bill defines it as information that is contradicted by contemporary scientific consensus. Now, clearly, if my doctor was to diagnose me with a certain condition, let's hope not, and propose mm -hmm. a certain form of treatment, it'd surely be wise for me to seek a second medical opinion. But if you take this bill at its word, in the state of California, I can only have access to one opinion, the consensus opinion. That's just troubling on so many levels. It is, and it actually flies in the face of what we know is good medical practice. I mean, good medical practice involves uh, tailoring medicine to the individual patient. And what is right for one patient might not be right for another. And we know that medical studies, randomised controlled trials and the like, uh, you, if they're good, they use very large sample sizes of tens of thousands of people. And what uh, is true in the aggregate or what might be true in the population might not actually apply to an individual patient. So I think it's a, it is a worrying trend and it actually just flies in the face of what we know is good medical practice and good scientific practice, if we're going to be honest. Well, let's pursue this, I call it medical censorship perhaps, one step further and um, there's a, an article in this week's Spectator, uh, full disclosure it's by my, my wife Rebecca Weiser, uh, but when she told me about the subject matter I was frankly astounded. So as we know uh, social media, Twitter and so forth have been deliberately censoring you know this so uh, misinformation however you define it on yeah. Covid right you write something that doesn't agree or they think it doesn't agree and you get 
taken down. Well, there actually has been a serious amount of uh, serious discussion, scientific discussion, as you'd expect, between medical professionals, senior doctors, you know, discussing the details or what what might be causing what or what can we do to stop it. Now, that's what you expect with any medical issue. But they've, of course, been deprived the right to exchange their views on social media. So what they've done is to develop a, a very sophisticated form of code using emojis, using the language of Klingon, you know, the fake, fake language, I think, from Star Wars, wasn't it, or somewhere, uh, and, and using codes like M or, or, or S or, you know, different initials that they know in order to get past the COVID censors on social media. I just think, well, this is something that five years ago I would have thought would only exist in totalitarian nations, but here it is now, and I think it's bad, don't you? Yeah, look, to be honest, I'm, I'm unaware of this story and I, I, I can't offer any special insight into, um, the, you know, using code on social media. You're, I not, think... you're not fluent in Klingon, I tell <laughs> no, you. No, I'm not fluent, no. <laughs> um, I, think, I think, though, social media is a, is a particularly great area because we know that because the social media companies have been quite... Uh, negligent in allowing um, bots to proliferate on their uh, platforms. We don't, half the time, we don't even know if a person posting something on social media is a real individual. There's no verification that an individual is a real person. So I think uh, free speech in society and free speech in certain forums is not necessarily the same thing as free speech on social media, and I, I am actually a critic of social media. I think it's not that they're—it's not that I want them to censor more, but I wish they would control some of the <laughs> some of the more um, malicious activity on social on social media that might be from Chinese bots, from Russian bots, and the like. I, I think I think social media companies actually get away with a lot. Um, I can't comment on that particular instance of people using code to escape social media censorship. I've been censored on social media for... Um, I, I can't run ads for Quillette on social media because I've been flagged as adult content, <laughs> as, as pornography, because I, I, some of my articles have um, nude statues or nu nude pieces of art, so I'm adult content. Now, that's that's because... Social media <laughs> is basically run by algorithms. There's no person behind the desk making the decision. So I'm not a fan of social media companies, but I do, but I would distinguish between free speech on social media and free speech in, in broader society. I think there's, there's separate domains. Well, I, I classify you as adult content, but for <laughs> this reason, you have adult conversations on yeah, Quillette, yeah, as we right. strive to do here. Yeah. And, and it's, it's in a world where, you know, the, the tendency is to dumb down almost everything and not have serious yeah. comment, co co conversations, even about really serious topics yeah. like climate change or perhaps, you know, more directly, the energy policy that flows from climate change. And what I detect, I think, uh, is this sort of premature closure of minds. You know, they've made up their minds about there's one point of view, they won't accommodate any, any other, and so the whole conversation gets dumbed down in order to sort of support that point of view. Um, I'm sure, like me, you've got your doubts about the feasibility of the current path towards the goal of net zero emissions, 
by 2050. Uh, let's set aside what we think of that goal for a moment because it's, it's locked into legislation, foolishly in my view, but there it is. That's our goal. The crucial question now is how best to get there without sending ourselves back to some dark and dismal pre-industrial age. Uh, now, there are good ways to do this, I would have thought, or potentially good ways, and you and I, I think, share the same excitement about the possibilities of the technological advances that have been made in nuclear generation, particularly small nuclear reactors. Perhaps, first of all, tell me about your understanding of small modular reactors and, and why you, like me, are, uh, are willing to take this idea seriously. Well, they're, they're the next generation of nuclear technology. So we all know about the huge nuclear plants that have popularised on The Simpsons and associated with, you know, uh, you know, nuclear plants in Ukraine and Russia and so on and so forth. But the next generation of nuclear technologies uh, sort of takes uh, innovation in nuclear energy generation right down to the, a very small size so that these uh, modular reactors can be built within three to five years, far cheaper than the big plants and are uh, safer because they can be moved. You can move a small modular reactor from one spot to another. And so they just avoid all of the pitfalls of the big nuclear plants. They're smaller, they're cheaper, they're safer. And it's, I mean, nuclear energy is very safe as it is. The traditional form is quite safe, despite the alarmism around uh, meltdowns in Chernobyl and so on. Uh, it just takes, it takes the technology to the next stage of innovation. And it means that uh, countries that don't have a domestic nuclear energy industry already, such as Australia, could ramp up and scale up nuclear energy fairly quickly. In three to five years, New Scale has provided estimates that Australia could have its first fleet of small modular reactors in just seven years. Uh, now they're cheaper, uh, they're pro you know, they need fewer um, storage costs, less, fewer transmission lines, less concrete, less land than solar and wind farms. And I just think that they're a good alternative to solar and wind farms. Yeah, so there's a good case to be made for them. I think we, in fairness, we have to say, well, the technology I think is, is proven, unlike you know, some other technologies like hydrogen in which people investing some hope, green hydrogen. We have proven technology. We know the technology works. What we don't know yet is how easy it's going to be to scale it up to full-scale production and how that will bring the costs down and so forth. So there are questions over costs, that, that's fair enough. But according to Bowie now, Chris Bowie, our energy minister, he, he's certainly made up his mind. I mean, he, the issue came up in Parliament this week again. Oh, it's too expensive. It is too expensive, that is his answer. But look, whether he's right or wrong on that, Claire, uh, and I've got a strong hunch he's going to be wrong, actually, how does he know? I mean, SMR technology, as I've just said, isn't fully scaled up, so we, mm. we don't know with certainty what the final cost will be. And at the same time, I've got absolutely no idea what the cost of renewables are at the moment because they're just not being costed fully, as we know, for all sorts of reasons. We, we just don't know how much they're costing. Mm. So how could he say on that basis that nuclear is more expensive full stop? It's essentially closing his mind to any contrary arguments, isn't it? Which is precisely where we started this discussion. Mm. Well, I'm not sure he's been given the right advice on this issue because uh, wind and solar have to be backed up by batteries. Batteries are not cheap. 
We've currently got a shortage of lithium and other materials that go into making batteries. Some estimates for what it would cost Australia to have all of the batteries needed to power the grid, to, to, to store the wind and solar energy, to power the grid, it's in the trillions. So, I mean, too expensive compared to what? I mean, mm. you know, wind and solar are cheap when it's a windy day and it's a sunny day. But as we know, weather is unpredictable and intermittent. I, and I'm just generally skeptical of energy sources that rely on the weather to protect us from the weather. I mean, if, <laughs> if climate change is going to lead to all of these uh, uh, natural disasters, how can, we, how can we bank on having a reliable wind and reliable sun? I mean, this year has been one of the wettest years on record. Uh, what, what happens to all of the solar panels when we can't, you know, we can't uh, generate and store energy from, from them? I, ju I just think rely uh, nuclear is a reliable alternative to baseload power if we don't want to use coal anymore, which it doesn't look like we do. And um, I, I, I just don't understand why nuclear is off the table. I mean, if this really is an existential crisis, why are we even talking about cost? Mm. It mm. doesn't make sense. No, and I think you've hit on something there. It's what, what I, I call energy illiteracy. Uh, you know, it's complex, right? I mean, you, to, to understand truly how our energy system works, you've got to understand a fair bit of engineering, some of which is way above my head, but you've got to have a grasp of it. Economics too. Uh, all sorts of things come into full understanding. But there is definitely, I think, this high degree of energy illiteracy. People are not making, taking the trouble or don't really want to get to know the details. And interestingly, it seems to me that it's more prevalent amongst people you think might have the time and the inclination to find out about it. And uh, as a measure for this, well, I take a polling we've done that shows that, broadly speaking, 60% of people are, believe there is a need for some backup power, whether it's coal, uh, gas, or, or most, most people actually say nuclear, or those who say we don't need it. You know, we can just put in more windmills or more transmission lines, more solar panels and a few batteries and that'll get us there. Now, that 40% seemed to me to be utterly energy illiterate. I mean, you've only got to look at what's happening in... Europe now, right, to know the whole thing's coming crashing down, doesn't matter how many wind and solar plants you put in, you still need that synchronised solid backup power, don't you? Isn't that what's happening in Europe? Yeah, I, I saw something very dystopian actually on social media just yesterday and a British game show was giving away, um, they were offering contestants to pay their energy bills. Energy bills are so out of control that you can go on a game show and win payment of your energy bills. I mean, that's dystopian. Well, you know, in 2022, we should not be worrying about how we're going to pay our energy bills. I mean, we've got all of the technology. It seems to me that the real barrier here is ideology. Mm. And it's not, it's not just energy illiteracy. I would argue that there's something called a naturalistic fallacy going on. Some people are inherently sceptical of anything that's not natural, uh, and particularly people who are in the environmentalist movement. They're suspicious of technological innovation that comes from human creativity. Mm. And I think that's the real barrier here. And there's, there's a lack of understanding and knowledge that 
Civilization is built upon human ingenuity, human creativity, and we've made the world a better place with our intellect. Mm. And we can keep making it a better place with our intellect. But, you know, if we want to fantasize about going back to some natural landscape where, you know, we just have to rely on wind and solar to power modern civilization, I mean, that's just going to fail. Exactly. And we've been locked into this. You've I'm sure found it as frustrating as I have, probably for 20 years or more on this topic, locked into this this polarised battle where people take, you know, sort of highly um, ideological stands. Uh, but look, surely, I mean, I want to hold out some hope now. I'd, please tell me I'm right, but if I'm not, tell me I'm not right. Hmm. We're surely in a place now where, as we said earlier, we now have... Uh, cross-party agreement that the target for Australia is zero, uh, net zero in 2050. Not only that, it's, it's locked into law. And so, you know, an incoming government must either come in with a mandate to change that, and good luck with that, I say, in the current political environment, or it's got to meet that target. So the question, surely now the, the argument is over about whether we do something uh, about carbon emissions, it, you know, that, that's been settled uh, for better or worse. The question is how? Yeah. So yeah. on that basis, shouldn't we all be on the same page? Well, why the argument, you know, why should there any more, be any more deep philosophical or moral divide between us and, say, Greenpeace on this? Surely we're both, we're all in the same game, aren't we? Well, unfortunately, in this country, we have a moratorium on nuclear power. And uh, that le misguided legislation has been in place for 24 years. And so we are, we are paralysed on the issue of nuclear power because of some outdated legislation that we have. And unfortunately, not just because of the legislation, because environmental activists themselves oppose nuclear power for reasons that have been debunked for some time now. There's a fear around waste, which has been debunked several times. There's fear about accidents, again, debunked. Um, so there are some misguided fears that do need to be alleviated. But I would just argue that people my generation and younger aren't as scared, as, as scared of nuclear power as perhaps uh, older generations, and that might be because uh, we didn't grow up with the fear of the bomb. <laughs> mm. And there's, there's a, a bit of a conflation between, I think for baby boomers, there's a bit of a conflation between nuclear power and nuclear weapons, which doesn't need to, to be there. Yeah, I think you're definitely right about that uh, age divide. We've seen it in polling and we want to probe a bit more into this, but you're not, you know, your generation wasn't brought up to be scared of the bomb. Exactly. You, you yeah. were brought up to be, you know, absolutely paralysed with fear about climate change. Yeah. Which goes to my next point. So um, the, 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 the rise of the teal independence, we all recognise, you know, the stereotype of the teal. And actually, it's not just a stereotype. It seems to be quite consistent mm. that, that the teal movement or certainly the teal uh, representatives are of a type, you know, that they tend to be... Uh, uh, mothers, uh, ed educated, they've had a university education, they're curious about the world. Uh, they, they, they're part of that, what we used to call the mum's net thing. Um, uh, now, at all intents and purposes, I, I don't want to stereotype you, but you're in that bracket. Yeah. In, in, in fact, not only that, uh, Claire, one more piece of evidence. You come from Port Adelaide, and as we know, Port Adelaide uh, 
wear teal and black shirts. So, <laughs> you, you, why aren't you a teal? What make? Why do you? Why are you such a refreshing thinker in that you um, you don't you buck that conventional wisdom? Uh, that's an interesting question. I would just say that to me, the teals represent a particular class, and they are upper middle class women from very wealthy electorates. And I'm not saying that uh, that there's anything wrong with being upper middle class or coming from a wealthy electorate. However, I would just argue that when you have money, a uh, substantial amount of money, your concerns and interests differ from someone who doesn't have a lot of money. Now, <laughs> when I was growing up in Port Adelaide, um, you know, it's a more modest, a more, more humble environment. Uh, you're not necessarily worrying about the world ending 10 years from now or 20 years from now. You're worried about paying the bills next week, you know. And so there's a bit of a uh, disjunction between your pri priorities for living today and living tomorrow. Now, there's nothing wrong with planning for the future and developing policies and ideas for the future. I actually think that's really important. But what I don't like about the teals is that they, they virtue signal about it. It's done in a flashy manner, almost to signal their wealth and their luxury. To me, uh, some of their uh, positions are what I would describe as luxury beliefs. <laughs> it's look at how wealthy and comfortable we are. We, can, we, we want to invest in these new technologies um, that are only going, you know, we're only going to see the results in decades from now. I mean, you could say the same about nuclear technology. I would just argue that nuclear technology has more science behind it. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's, there's legitimate policy differences there. But the thing that I don't like about the teals is the virtue signaling that goes with it. And, um, you know, they obviously do represent a particular class's interests. Mm. Well, look, time is the most precious commodity we have and, and we're out of it again. I always okay. enjoy our conversations. There's always plenty of interesting and fascinating lines we leave left unexplored. So I, I, it won't be hard to find an excuse to invite you back on and I hope okay. you'll accept the invitation. Sure, of course, Nick. Thanks for having me. Thanks. I've enjoyed it. Yep. Thanks, Claire. That's Thank Claire you. Lehman, the editor and founder of Quillette. Thank you for all your emails and comments, the good and the bad and the indifferent. I appreciate all your insights. And if you'd like to share me, uh, share your thoughts with me, just shoot me an email. The email address is there on the screen below. But if you've forgotten your reading glasses, I'll read it to you. NickCater at ADH.TV. That's NickCater at ADH.TV. Last week, we spoke about solar panels. They're unreliable. They're made in China and they're, in, uh, they're likely to end up in landfill, just to give you three of their problems. Uh, I think your frustrations with Labor's energy proposals are clear And uh, uh, at this point. John says, electricity is up and will keep going up. Food is up. Labor is increasing fuel prices this month, and that will continue to rise. Taxes have already started increasing, and we have to think twice about having a beer. I hope not. And, uh, and now the wage spiral is about to be set loose. Mining permits are under review. This government is determined to send the whole country broke. 
George has a word or two on uh, Daniel Andrews' government in Victoria. He, don't we all, George? He says, the Andrew government tells, tells us precisely what happens when our elected officials and bureaucrats have way too much external influence from institutions like WEF, WHO and the UN. We saw during the pandemic the signing of agreements with those entities that override our laws and constitution. It won't be long before we're eating bug sandwiches, owning nothing and being happy about it. Well, speak for yourself. I'm not sure I'd be happy about that. We're not too far off anyway, are we, George? Uh, Michael says, I've been following all that's been happening in Victoria for the last three years. And this group and these commentators have been nowhere to be seen. It's like they feel they can come out of their closets now and start talking and talking like they've been there all along. Yep, there's a lot of hindsight, isn't there, in this. Michael, I assure you I've been loud and clear on this very issue from the beginning. And if you don't believe me, go and look at the Men's Research Centre website or the Water Cooler podcast or the archives of The Australian, and I guarantee you'll find a few scathing remarks about the Andrews government given at the time. Well, that's it for this evening. Thank you so much for your comments. Thank you to my guests, Amanda Stoker and Claire Lehman. And thank you too to my producer, Amy, and to the entire team here at ADH TV. But of course, most of all, thank you to you for watching.